ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The big merino, the big prawn, the big bogan. Our nation's highways and country towns are littered with an astonishing number of big things. As a kid growing up in Queensland in the 1980s, my family made a pilgrimage to the Big Pineapple. I remember loving the size of it, the kitsch weirdness of it, and I do also remember a very good tropical fruit parfait we had there. A few years ago, though, I took my own kids to the Big Pineapple, and I don't know if I'd overhyped it, but they were not impressed. And to be fair, what was inside was now just a, a series of dusty displays of tinned pineapples and old cans of golden pash, and there was certainly no parfait to be found. This is one of the ways that big things can go. Being loved, then falling into disrepair, then maybe spruced up and loved again, and if not... Well, big things, by their very nature, can be pretty challenging to get rid of. Dr Amy Clark is a serious historian who unexpectedly became an expert on big things. Hi, Amy. Hi. So mine was the big pineapple. What was your mm. first encounter with a big thing as a child? I was fortunate to grow up in the Adelaide Hills and they in the Adelaide Hills have, I think, the best big thing, not just in Australia, but in That's a big, the the world. big bold claim to start with. Amy. I feel qualified to make that <laughs> statement. Um, we, we have the big rocking horse in Gamaraka and it is spectacular. I, I I've never seen it. Tell me. Well, it's, it's sort of sitting in this bush, you know, you kind of come around a bushy kind of, you know, road just looms out of nowhere. It's white and red and you can climb up. uh, You used to be able to climb up. Insurance may now have gotten in the way. You used to be able to climb up and there's a couple of different platforms that you could look out from and you got given a certificate. A certificate? To confirm that you'd done it, that you'd climbed. <laughs> and there used to be a little toy shop underneath. So it was heaven as a kid. And and why is there a big rocking horse? Is this something that, that South Australia is famed for, the production of, of rocking horses? <laughs> I think they roam freely on the hills yeah, outside I, of Adelaide. Yeah, let's perpetuate all these strange <laughs> myths. Um, no, I think it, that in particular was a, a toy maker that was already in the business of making toys, and he thought, why not offer this extra thing to get people coming to visit? And he built it. Oh, it was thirty or forty years ago now. So the magic of that struck you mm. as a kid. But what about now as an adult, when you see a big thing on the landscape, what does it do to you? <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm probably still quite childlike in my wonder of big things. Um, even the ones that are quite run down and, you know, the ones that look a little bit scrappy, I still feel a sense of joy when I see them. Um, but there is definitely that adult part of my brain that says, this is a bit silly, you know, why, <laughs> why did they bother to do this instead of something far more serious? Um, I guess that's part of the appeal, isn't it? There's yeah. something just by definition quite strange yes. about building a big thing of yes. something. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's why we all love them so much, you know, because they are in many ways completely unnecessary uh, they're not saving the world. They're not doing anything spectacular in terms of scientific discoveries. And often, you know, the reaction we have to them, I think, is just pure joy. Like that that reaction of surprise and, you know, you almost want to giggle when you see them. You can't not point it out yeah. if you're in a car. Like, what, what is that? Look at that. <laughs> and that's why, that's their whole point. You know, they're meant to be so big and so silly and you, that you're meant to feel compelled to pull the car, or if you're a kid, you know, you're meant to feel like you're just going to hassle your parents until, and sometimes you'll hassle them, you, they'll have driven past and you'll still be hassling them, you know, half an hour down the road and they'll then kind of turn the car around just to make the kids shut up. I feel like that you're speaking out of personal experience Absolutely. there. As I, as I mentioned, Amy, this expertise in big things is not what you intended for in your <laughs> career as a historian. What did you research for your PhD? So I'm actually an architectural historian and I did my master's in uh, Edinburgh in Scotland in architectural history and then came back to Brizzy to do my PhD here in Scottish heritage. 
And uh, this was, you know, 10 years ago now. So I was looking at how different groups in Scotland, the, the government were manipulating Scottish heritage sites, battlefields and so on, um, to try and kind of promote a particular historical narrative in the lead up to the Scottish independence referendum, which was in 2014. Give me an example of that. That's fascinating. Um, yeah. So, you know, the Scottish government was investing in, say, uh, a new, a really big new you know, 40 or 50 million pound visitor centre at the Battle of Bannockburn. And I mean, it's a legitimate heritage site, but it was interesting they chose that to invest in in the lead up because that is the last um, place in Scotland that the Scots beat the English. So there was definitely that kind of narrative of let's remind everyone as they're kind of coming into that moment of voting in this mm. referendum to leave England that we've beaten them before. Um, and so I was very interested in that. Well, I guess, you know, as that example illustrates that what we choose to preserve and fund as heritage, it shines a light on what we value as a society. It can. Um, I think there's also a risk of the opposite in that we can also ignore things that we probably should save. So I was also interested in what wasn't being protected and funded um, by the government at the time. And of course, back then it was anything that showed you know, maybe some kind of cooperation with England, they were not putting money towards because they didn't want anyone to have this idea that they'd been friends, I guess, at any point historically. Um, so there's, it is interesting, the sort of, uh, I guess, the decisions we make, the way that we push certain places or sites or landmarks to the forefront um, and ignore others. It's really actually been the kind of connecting narrative of my career. Um, when you say heritage, is that the same for you as history or, or how are they, yeah. how do those two terms sit together? I mean, they sort of sit next to each other. I think heritage is very open to change and manipulation. So what we might now think of as important and worth saving um, may not be what people 20 years ago thought was important and needed saving. So it, it's quite a, a sort of shifting, evolving um, thing, whereas history, well, I mean, I teach my students <laughs> that history is also very malleable and flexible, but I think that's more about, you know, the true or the as close as we can get to the true, you know, event of what actually happened. A record of fact yeah. rather than just how it's remembered. So Scottish independence, heritage sites, how did that go into big things? <laughs> How did big things first come across your professional radar? Well, uh, so I'm a, I'm a member of the Society of Architectural Historians of Australia and New Zealand, an esteemed establishment. And we have an annual conference and each year someone picks a theme and it's meant to be quite a broad, vague theme so that everyone going can, you know, manipulate it to suit whatever their research is. And um, the University of Canberra was holding it in 2017. And the theme they picked that year was quotation, which was probably a great theme. But I thought, oh, God, this is going to be so boring, you know. <laughs> and to be fair, I had like, my PhD was a, it's an exhausting experience for anyone. So I was still a couple of years, you know, I was still recovering. Let's put it that way. I was still a PhD hangover. That's right. Yeah. And I just didn't feel that I, I was, I was in my wild, you know, graduation era of just doing silly things. And I thought everyone else is going to talk about Frank Lloyd Wright, who quoted this earlier architect, who quote, oh, how boring. I'm going to talk about how big things are essentially quotations of real world objects, but huge. And I fully, I, I'm not kidding, I absolutely was hoping people would be offended and annoyed. Yeah, this was your punk rock moment. You went in Correct. as Sid Vicious. Yes, yeah. I, I didn't have a mohawk, but I definitely should have in hindsight done that. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I was thinking this is going to irritate people. I was hoping people would walk out. They didn't. Uh, and so I was trying to be provocative. And yeah, I came off stage and lots of really, you know, my, my seniors, you know, colleagues that I really look up to said, that was great. You know, what are you what are you going to do with this research? What and had excited them about it, do you think? I think it's the same thing that everyone finds exciting. And that is just the sheer silliness and joy of big things. And I, I guess one of the points I made in that original paper was that no one else 
had taken it seriously. No one else had bothered to do a history of it, to sort of think about it as something worth studying. And uh, I guess in many ways I sort of fell into that trap myself because I was expecting everyone else to laugh at it. And um, I think that sort of resonated with people, that tendency that we've had in academia to focus on the serious, the higher class, the more elite, um, you know, in architecture, we've certainly stopped doing that as much um, as what we might have been guilty of in the past. But I think big things are a much more, I won't say low class, but, you know, they're, they're quite an egalitarian sort of structure. Um, you don't need to be an architect or someone with an art history degree to understand what a big thing is doing. It's a big pineapple. That's it. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> so what makes a big thing a big thing? I mean, is there a working definition? You know, it it has been my dream. Uh, this, this just goes to reveal how um, completely boring my life is. But when I was doing my PhD, I said uh, to some friends and to my parents, I want to invent a word. Like, I want to come up with a word no one else has come up with that everyone in going forwards is going to have to use. And that didn't happen, unfortunately. But then big things, it turned out, there was no clear definition. And so I've grasped that and I've developed what I like to think of as Amy's big rules. Share um, them with us, yes. please. So a big thing has to be 3D. Um, so that sort of separates it out from a roadside billboard, like a 2D. That doesn't count. Um, it has to be man-made and that kind of eliminates all of the, you know, there's a giant Mali route, for example, in Victoria that some people say, does that count? Um, you know, and, and Uluru, for example. So it has to be man-made um, and it has to be so overwhelmingly large that you, much larger than the real world thing, but so overwhelmingly large that you feel compelled to look at it. You feel compelled to, you know. So I think it's it's not so much about scale because if we were to say it's just, it just has to be bigger than the real world thing, we'd fall into the trap of, say, a mosquito that's the size of a Coke can. That would count as a big thing. And that's not a big thing. That's a really unimpressive big thing. Yes. I have seen a big cane toad in Serena in North Queensland, which is bigger than the cane toad, but it's not that big. It's not huge. I mean, there's an interesting sort of subcategory of big things that started out as pageant floats and parade floats, and it's one of them. Um, so it was made by the local community. Originally, they kind of paraded it through town on the back of a truck. Um, so it's not just purely because of that, you know, it's not as big as the others. It's a sort of big thing. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes the big thing is actually even smaller than the thing itself. <laughs> what did the Leyland Brothers build at Leyland Brothers World on the New South Wales coast? Uh, I... You know, this, this research is so fun for me because I often get told off by people. And this, the, the Leyland Brothers World had until recently, it sadly burnt down a couple of years ago, but they had what everyone referred to as the big Uluru. And I made the point a few years ago on Talkback Radio that that doesn't count as a big thing because it's smaller than the real Uluru and... Significantly smaller. I mean, I did not think that was controversial. I've got to say, I was, I thought that of all the things I was saying on the radio that day, that was the least offensive. And yeah, the next person they put through just was irate and he said, that is, you are un-Australian. Oh, oh, that's the or, big guns. <laughs> and I, ever since then, I've been trying to, um, you know, I try to come up with Amy's rules, but then also say, you know, it's it, these are open to interpretation. And because big things are everyone's, you know, that's, that's really important. I think everyone has the right to say what they think a big thing is. And it speaks to the affection with which people yeah. hold these objects, yeah. doesn't it? So who am I, you know, to come in and, and really force my rules down other people's throats? And I don't want to be accused of being un-Australian again. So uh, I learnt my lesson. We, we respect the, the now sadly <laughs> deceased little big Uluru. Yeah. I mean, some of the, the most beloved big things are a little wonky looking. And is that a common element too, that there's the kind of hand of the maker in these objects? They're not seamless public art. There's, yeah. there's an amateur side to them. Yeah. I think, uh, especially in the early era 
of big things. Um, you know, we're talking sort of 60s, 70s, 80s in Australia. There was definitely a lot more of that kind of grassroots vernacular, um, people that just thought, hey, I've got this great idea for a weekend project. I'll get my mates over, we'll drink some tinnies and we'll, you know. And so I think you do get that lovely sort of amateur. Uh, they do look a little bit shoddy. I love that though, you know, and I, I think the sort of imperfection that you can see it wasn't a professional artist um, or that it wasn't manufactured in, you know, a, a fiberglass, you know, factory or whatever. Um, I actually, I mean, that, that sort of type of big thing falls, in my opinion, very firmly into what we would call folk art. Um, and I think we should be taking that quite seriously um, and maybe, you know, splitting it into a distinct category of big thing away from those others that have been more professionally made. What about statues? I mean, where do they fit in Amy's rules and categories? Uh, you know, it's that's a really great question because there are some big things that some people would describe as statues and vice versa. Um, so we used to have a big Captain Cook in Cairns. Um, he's actually been dismantled, I think, and taken down last year or two. I mean, he was just a big Captain Cook. With a weird arm Yeah, making a, a slightly unsavoury gesture, yes. Um, apparently he was modelled off of a painting from the turn of the century, uh, turn of the 20th century, who he was also, in that painting, apparently was gesturing hello to the First Nations peoples, but it looked an awful lot like a Sig Hale. Yeah, it was not, it was not great. Um, uh, yeah, so there'd been there'd been a lot of controversy around him in the same vein that there has been a lot of discussion in the last, say, 10 years, 15 years about other Captain Cook statues. So he's no longer there. Um, to me, he was very clearly a big thing because he was very brightly coloured. Um, he was not made by an artist. He was not made from metal. He was largely ferro-concrete. He actually had concrete cancer in his legs and there was risk that he might disintegrate at the shins and fall into oncoming traffic, which would oh, have been God. horrible, um, but hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to me, he's very clearly, a, was very clearly a big thing. Um, but statues, I mean, it, it, you can apply my rules and, and I guess classify statues as big things. Um, personally, I think if it's not brightly coloured and if it's not got that obvious sort of wow factor to it, it doesn't count. If it's not at risk of, of yeah. killing passing <laughs> motorists, it does not count yeah. as a big thing. So do you know when and where the first big thing appeared? Well, unfortunately, I hate to break Australian hearts, but we did not come up with the concept of the big things. We we do it better, I will That's say. That's un-Australian. I know. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. It's like flashbacks. <laughs> um, no, we we definitely do it best. Let's, let's get that out of the way. Um, no, the first, I mean, the first obvious big thing was built in 1881 in New Jersey uh, by a man named James Lafferty, and he built a series of big elephants. And he was a real estate developer. So he was trying to get people to come out from New York to look at his beachside properties and sell them. And so he was using the elephants as a kind of sales gimmick. Which is interesting because that's kind of a big thing that makes sense in the sense that an elephant is already big. You just yes. make it bigger and as opposed to a pineapple. That's a... exactly right. Yes. And I maybe there was, I hadn't thought about that before, but maybe there was some kind of showmanship in that as well. You know, we associate elephants with circuses and, you know, that kind of fairground atmosphere. So I can see how he got to that point. Um, so he he definitely kind of kicked that off. People then realised this was working for him. He was getting lots of publicity. And so the idea slowly spread around North America in and the next couple of decades. With what kind of objects? What do they tend to make big things of in the States? Oh, it, I mean, in the first era, the sort of, uh, you know, 1880s, 90s into the 1920s, it was a lot of big fast food. So lots of strange ice cream cones and donuts and you know, all sorts of things, advertising, essentially whatever you could buy on the side of the road um, because that was, it was very straightforward sort of gimmick, really. I mean, you're trying to advertise something that's right there. So you want to have that immediate sort of recognition of a, a motorist that gets them to pull so over. So they were really close commercial kind of imperative yeah, to those. Absolutely. Um, we then sort of see in the 60s in the States, 
um, the, there was a sort of a, an appearance of a couple of manufacturers that made lots of the same kind of had moulds they would pour um, fibreglass into. And so we see at that point um, this appearance of the sort of, I guess, people in the States that collect these now call them muffler men, which I find is a really strange name for them. And people go, what? Yeah. So they, they were holding car mufflers, um, car tyres, anything that would sort of advertise a roadside business. So you would know that's a mechanic or that's a gas station or whatever. And there were, at one point, there were thousands of these, um, you know, and we're talking like really, really huge uh -huh. men that all looked the same and they were all holding things. So there's this very obvious kind of commercial fast food let's sell as much as we can on the roadside and then sort of shifts into let's use these generic people type big things. But again, still advertising in the States. What about in Canada, which is, is somewhere you in your, you know, tireless research into <laughs> big things, uh, Dr. Clark, you've travelled to, what, what, what's their attitude to, to mm. big things and what are popu what's popular there? Yeah, I do think it's interesting that you know, Canada in so many ways tries to differentiate itself from the United States and big things are no exception. I don't know whether they've done this on purpose or whether it's just, you know, a quintessentially Canadian thing, but they are much more like Australia in their kind of approach to big things. So they have picked, you know, the regional sort of produce or an animal or a fish or a bird that's specific to their location and that's what they've opted to build. I mean, they do still have some of the commercial. So does Australia. I mean, we have big golf balls and big beer cans and things, but um, so what, what sort of, like bears or? Bears and uh, there's, I did not know this until I went to Canada, but apparently the most fearsome creature in Canada is the Canadian goose. <laughs> <laughs> so they have big geese. So many. And there's one town in Ontario, Wawa, that has three of them. <laughs> Um, wow, wow, yeah, <laughs> and they, they, yeah, they just—they've become really, you know, fascinated by. Let's build all different types of big birds. Lots of big fish in Canada as well. Um, Tell me about the the stoush between Canada <laughs> and Norway over a big thing—the time when big things became a, a major international incident. So. You know, I mean, this this is not the. I will say this happens in a lot of places. Big things get used as ways to compete with one another, ways to sort of settle disagreements, historic disagreements. Um, this one, though, is really interesting because I think the, the people of Saskatchewan, uh, in fact, the town of Moose Jaw in Saskatchewan, um, have had for many years the biggest moose in the world. His name is Max the Moose. Um, very austere looking. He's huge. And they were very proud of this. And I think they just were going about their Business, not thinking. Canadian business. Yeah, you know, thank you very much. Sorry, thank you very much, you know, as, as Canadians do. And uh, a few years ago, they got wind that a town in Norway had built a slightly bigger moose called the Millennium Moose for some reason, because it was not the Millennium, it was after. And this blew up very quickly, the Canadian press and the Norwegian press. Um, so it became an international incident just between those two countries. Um, and... The Saskatchewan uh, people decided, well, we've got to dismantle ours and rebuild him bigger. So they created slightly bigger antlers for him and he, they put him up on a slightly higher plinth. And in the end, the Norwegians were sort of so concerned that they'd upset the Canadians that the Norwegian ambassador to Canada uh, went to Moose Jaw for the unveiling of the rehabbed, like, you know, he'd had plastic surgery. So Max the Moose version two Um yeah, so the Canadian, the Norwegian ambassador to Canada was there to sort of smooth everything over and say, look, you win. You win. You win. Arms down. You can have you it. You can be friends. <laughs> what is that about? Why would it matter, for goodness sake, whether the Norwegian uh, moose had... It's so, isn't that so strange, though, that, um, you know, that's such a low stakes thing, <laughs> right? Like of all the things that we could be really, really passionate about. Global leaders in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, we've got a really great local example of this. The town of Tully in Queensland um, claims to be the wettest town in Australia, but it shares that title each year with the towns around it. And Tully thought, right, well, we're going to fully claim that 
we're going to build the big golden gumboot and that way everyone will know we are officially in, you know, without question, the wettest town in Australia. And one of the neighbouring towns was so offended by that that they said, we're going to build a big umbrella. Um, it didn't happen. I guess it maybe wouldn't have been safe in cyclonic winds. Um, I guess it's a way to really, sta- you know, stamp your claim on yeah. something, isn't it? it it's, the, it's the full stop at the end of the sentence, you know. <laughs> so so what was our first big thing here in this country, Amy? I mean, I'm, I can be very, very provocative here and upset a lot of people. Uh, I'm, I'm from Adelaide originally, so proud to say that I think the first big thing was the big Scotsman. Still standing. You cannot look under his kilt. I've tried. Um, He was built in 1962. Uh, He's in Adelaide. He's on the side of a a hotel and he's spectacular. Um, But the big banana is perhaps the more famous early example. It was built in 1964. So it's a little over two years after the Scotsman. Um, but they, you know, they're very keen to promote that idea that they were the first. The big banana is. Yes, yes. So I've had to sort of be very careful in the past. And now I realise I'm saying this, you know, the entire the, world the is nation listening. is, is yeah. hearing you claim as a South Australian that it's the big Scotsman. I, I stand by that. You know, I'm proud. I'm proud that we did that one thing, you know. Um, the big banana is definitely the most, the far, by far the most famous and is definitely the one that kicked off the trend. You know, the big Scotsman's far lesser known. The big banana, I think there's there's obvious evidence of other communities becoming aware of the big banana and then saying we should do that too. So I think in that sense, it's the pioneer. Podcast, broadcast and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au/slash/conversations. So, Amy, you were saying just before that um, although the big banana might count as the iconic big Australian thing, it's actually the big Scotsman that was the first. What other would be in your kind of top ten or what are the what are the items that have made it from oh. just local curiosity into national icon when it comes yeah. to big things? I mean, there, there are a couple that I think most people have either seen themselves or know about. I mean, you mentioned the big pineapple. I think that's right up there. Um, uh, interestingly, there used to be a second big pineapple just up the road in Gympie. Um, it was built at r- largely the same time. And there's a local rumour that one of the construction companies stole the plans off of the other. Skullduggery in the yes. big thing world. Yes, yes. So I, I think the big pineapple that's still standing, one in Nambour, is, is one of those um, that, you, I mean, you just can't help but love it. You know, it's just beautiful. Um, there's no no other way you could describe it. Uh, I, I'm i quite drawn to, um, you know, I guess the really silly big things, um, that perhaps the lesser known ones that people don't know about. Um, there is a big rolling pin uh, in Albury-Wodonga that at one stage did actually rotate. Um, it was advertising a bakery. And it's that quirkiness that I love. I really love that. A lot of our big things are based on food, like the pineapple, <laughs> but there's the, the, the big mango, um, there's the big potato yes. in New South Wales. What, Often referred to as something else. Yeah, it doesn't, it, it, it's got an unfortunate look, that big <laughs> potato, doesn't it? Why is that? Why is food so popular with our big things, do you think? Yeah, I think, well, I mean, in Australia at least, um, We've we've always sort of gravitated towards big things when we're trying to promote a region, trying to promote a local business. Um, but it's it's often we're trying to think about well, what do we do in this particular part of Australia that's different to everywhere else, or what do we want to be known for? And it often is sort of fresh produce or. Um, you know, other primary industries, cows, bulls, for example. There's bulls in Rockhampton. Um, so I think it's, it is about that. It's about sort of celebrating our our primary industry in a strange way. Um, but food, you know, I think is also often what is trying to be sold at the business. So it makes sense to be marketing that component. I've never seen it. And now, sadly, I never can. 
tell me about the big, in fact, the giant earthworm <laughs> in Victoria. What was the story there? I've never seen it either. And I, it's tragic because it'd be like Romans talking, like the, the yeah. library of Alexandria or the, you know, the hanging right. gardens of Babylon. It, we missed this. It's, it is it's truly tragic that it is no longer with us. Um, so it turns out that Gippsland has a very unique, it's called the giant Gippsland earthworm. Um, the giant is actually part of its name. And it's it's isolated to this one tiny part of Victoria. And uh, several decades ago, uh, a couple of uh, businessmen had some property on the side of the road, the Bath Highway going down towards um, Phillip Island. And they thought, well, what can we build here that will get people to stop? And they thought, well, why not build a couple of hundred metres long giant, giant Gippsland earthworm that will get people sort of pulling over, but will also be educational. So you used to be able to walk through it and it was designed to make you feel like you were actually inside the worm. So oh. I have been told the walls were sort of squishy, the the floor kind of had a squelchy sound to it. Um, they had got a botanist who was an expert in the worms had recorded the sound they make or their stomachs make. And then when you got to the stomach part of the giant, giant earthworm, it would play that sound. So you'd be like you were hearing you were inside its stomach. Um, I mean, just so people told you their memories of visiting. Oh, this. my gosh, yes. And if you, anyone, anyone that either has lived in Victoria or Melbourne in this era or went on holidays down to Phillip Island, will have this really clear memory of, and I, I imagine from the road too, it must have looked very strange because it would have just been this really long brown, you know. Was um, it upright or on the ground? On the ground, on the lengthways. Ground. Yeah, you could walk all the way through it. I mean, how cool is that? There are a, a sad litany of other big things mm. that have been lost to time. What are some of the others that now only are only kept in history and memory? Yeah. I mean... It's funny because some of the ones that we've lost, in my view, are the ones that are so quintessentially Australian. Um, we've also recently lost uh, a series of big wool bales, um, which doesn't sound very interesting, but they actually were quite fascinating. They were quite spectacular. They looked amazing. They were in Victoria as well. Um, we at one stage had a big wine cask, um, which again, how how Australian, like a big goon bag, basically. Oh. Uh, that's gone. Um, you know, we the big Captain Cook's gone. We we've sort of let go. I think, um, particularly the last five ten years, we've seen quite a few disappear or be at risk of of being lost. And then it seems to me that it's not uncommon for big things to be moved or yeah. resold, which can't be an easy task. But there used to be a big cow yes. in uh, in the Sunshine Coast. It's been moved somewhere else. And the, the big kangaroo Matilda from the Commonwealth Games is now somewhere outside of Gympie. Gympie. A lot's happening in Gympie, yeah. <laughs> really. That keeps coming up. It's true, isn't it? I hadn't thought of that. Um, yeah, the big cow was in Yandina um, and it, it. I think the problem with some of these big things is that they work as a gimmick initially, and then everyone sort of knows what they're doing and they're not surprising anymore. So they're a bit sort of one trick pony. And then the business, the original business perhaps fails and you're left with this giant object and it becomes a question of, well, can we put another business in there? So this is what happened with the big cow. They kept trying to make it work in Yandina. They put different unrelated to cows businesses in it. And in the cow. Yeah, used to be able to climb up into it. Yeah, and they used it as offices at one stage. Oh, um, and it just never really, yeah, just it, I guess it just didn't make sense after it wasn't no, it representing the dairy industry. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. And I guess once you've had your photo taken in front of the big cow once, right. maybe you don't feel compelled to have it That's it. taken yeah. again. And so it, it's there is actually a, quite a serious sort of business theory component to big things. And again, I'm a historian. I never thought I'd be talking about business theory, you know, regional branding or whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 to, in order for a big thing to be successful long term, it needs to have more than just the bigness to offer people. So you see the big banana is a really good example where they've added, you know, indoor skiing and <laughs> well, that a makes candle sense. shop. Yeah, That's absolutely. a logical connection. <laughs> In Coffs Harbour, of course, the well-known ski destination of Australia. Um, but, you know, things that will keep people on site. So they're quite complex once you get beyond the bigness 
of, of that first impression. Do you have any sense of how they move these big things? Like how did the <laughs> cow get moved from... On a truck. Um, just like in one piece? It can, yes, yeah, sometimes, yeah. Although there is a great story about Larry the Lobster um, before he was actually assembled in Kingston, SE in in South Australia. Um, He was manufactured in Adelaide and then shipped on the back of a truck in pieces. And at the time, a journalist interviewed some motorists that had just (laughs) happened to catch glimpses of these sort of red alien-like, you know, tentacles and legs and things just on the back of a truck. (laughs) You know, it would have been quite alarming to see that. So that's an example of of a big thing that hit hard times. Tell Tell me more about Larry the Lobster and his evolution. Good old Larry the Lobster. I mean, I I think he is one of one of our true icons. I'd like to see him being given, you know, some kind of national recognition. Um, true Aussie battler. He he was built in um, you know the last couple of decades in the seventies um, to market to sort of fresh produce of that part of the South Australian coast. Was quite popular, and then as many big things do, sort of everyone had seen it already. Everyone had already taken their photo. It changed hands a few times. It then was on the market for ages. I think in 2015, it was up for sale for like $200,000, which to me sounds like a bargain, especially now. I was going to say, that sounds like a lot of money. (laughs) Well, I think the problem, the reason why it was for sale for so long was that it, it had a significant amount of work that needed doing to it. I mean, these are really complex structures in many ways. Larry the Lobster is a really good example. Lots of spines and legs and many places that it could go wrong in terms of its construction. Um, and so repairing them or keeping them in good repair can be quite expensive. So he fell onto hard times and was looking very shabby and no one really wanted him and the owners didn't have the money to you know look after him. So there was a period of time there where the locals were trying to get him heritage listed. There was a crowd-funded campaign, national, to sort of raise money for him. None of that worked. And then news sort of spread that maybe there was a buyer in Western Australia that was going to take Larry. Um, And you would think that if you were a local, you'd be glad that he was just going to, you know, go to a new home and and and. Just going to remind you that it's not a real oh, he lobster is, he or is animal. So, I mean, he it's... is. He's got a name. <laughs> so sorry, but your feeling was that people of South Australia should be glad that Larry was being cared for. I think so. I mean, if they care so much about him, but they that should wasn't want their, him. To... That no, wasn't their, they, their reaction was over our dead bodies. We would rather <laughs> we him can't have Larry. Nobody cares. That's exactly right. I mean, and again, it goes back to that whole un-Australian. Like, how dare you suggest we would let go of this? So, at the very last minute, um, a local businessman stepped in and purchased him, and he's he's still there. He has been fixed up a little bit. So. Yeah, he's he's escaped being boiled over in WA. <laughs> Sometimes the the big things don't look as the creator may have hoped. There are some big dinosaurs near Stanthorpe that <laughs> had that have that experience. Tell me what they look like and how they maybe don't look like they yeah. should have. I mean, I I like to think of them as primary school art projects gone wrong. Um, I mean, you can sort of tell what the creator or creators, in this case, it was a local community project. Um, I think they were trying to market, uh, you know, some sort of fruit and veg festival. This is several, a couple of decades ago now anyway. Um, and they thought, well, why not Why not build a giant dinosaur? It's unclear to me to this day what type of dinosaur it is. You actually cannot, t- I think it looks like a stegosaurus, um, but it's not. And, and why they chose that to market fruit and veg? Uh, who knows? You know, I mean, I guess a dinosaur is shocking when you see it on the side of the road. I mean, yeah, why do we? Yeah, why do we build anything? Um, yeah, so it, when you drive past it, it it especially at nighttime. I've driven past it at nighttime. It sort of just jumps out at you from the side of the road, and it's sort of misshapen and lumpy, and it, it it's not entirely clear if they were going for like a kind of dragon appearance or they were trying to replicate something much more accurate. Um, yeah, it, it's it's beautiful because of how dishevelled and unkempt it looked. It looks, you know, it's the weirdness is what makes it attractive. 
Are there other big things whose charm for you lie in that, the, the fact that they don't look quite like the thing they're meant to look yes. like? Yes. I mean, I, lo- I love it when it, it's close enough that you can see what they were trying to achieve, but not so close that you think this is, this is the work of a professional. <laughs> There's um, in, in, inland from Coffs Harbour, there is a little town called Glen Ray um, and they have this giant golden dog um, that sits out the front of a pub there. Uh, It's actually fairly recent. It was built, I think, in the last 10 years. And I believe that they've had to renovate it a couple of times because the first few times they made it, it looked weird. Um, It it doesn't look, it it sort of looks like a 2D drawing of a dog done by a seven-year-old that they've somehow made 3D. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a very strange looking thing. Well, as you're saying, it's it's not usually professional artists. It, it is passionate individuals yeah. who are constructing these big things. Like it's one thing to make a little mistake on a drawing, but to make something of a massive size, it, it can become very clear. There are a whole lot of uh, challenges in constructing something of a size like that. Mm. Tell me, please, about the big lawn bowl. <laughs> in Lake Cathy. It, it, is, it is truly representative of that kind of grassroots vernacular spirit of we, we don't need to be professionals in this way. In fact, the, the man, the main man that was responsible for it was a jeweller by training. So he was Little at the things. very opposite end of the <laughs> spectrum. Yes, exactly. Um, there, there's a, a bowling club down there um, they wanted to promote and I, I guess they'd sort of seen success elsewhere in New South Wales with, for example, the Big Banana and they thought, well, why don't we build a big lawn bowl? And he started doing this in underneath his house in like a weird sort of Under his house? What, garage. How? what was he, how do you construct a giant Well, he, I, that's a very good question. I don't think he knew the answer either. I think he sort of just made it up as he went along. So he kind of had a, a he created its, his own rig for it because it, apparently it's quite difficult to create something spherical once it gets to a certain size because all of the weight wants to pull down to sort of the bottom part of the shape. So it becomes very uneven. So he created a rig that would slowly spin for him so that he could make sure the layers were applied evenly. Um, And yeah, it just got to a point where it was too big for him to easily get it out of the house. Um, or from underneath the house. Anyway, um, they did get it out eventually. I'm not sure whether they had to take bits and pieces of the walls down or, and then they kept adding more layers to it outside. Um, oh. And it's been given a renovation recently. So oh, they love it. That's they, beautiful. I love that. I did once have on Conversations a man who'd built a hovercraft in his own living room and then he couldn't work out to get it outside either. Ah. So this is not a, a one-off. This, yeah, build the, it. Big build vision it. and then the next step can Build be it and they will come <laughs> to this very specific room where it is existing. How many big things are there? I mean, what what number have you been able to, to put on this I, in your years of research? Yes, uh, my very scientific count. Uh, it, it's actually quite difficult because it depends on what you include and exclude. So, um, you know, I, I've tried to be somewhat flexible and I've tried to include, for example, the big Uluru, even though in my humble opinion, it doesn't count because it's not big. Um, it's in there. So I've, I've had to be a bit flexible, but most people assume we've got, say, 100, 200. Um, I think we've got around 1,000. What? Which is a, a huge a lot. number. Yes. And, and we are continually adding to that list. Are we? So they're still being built today? Absolutely. Yes. What are some of the newer big things? There's a big watermelon slice um, out West Queensland near Chinchilla. Um, the Big Bogan was built in 2015. Now He's... tell me about that because that was a controversial <laughs> one, the Big Bogan. Yeah, I mean, I think most people would instinctively, you know, understand why. Uh, so Ningen in New South Wales is in Boganshire. It's near the Bogan River. And it was an Anglican minister and a couple of his local friends on the council that wanted to have something to draw people out to Ningen. And this is often, particularly more recently, it's more remote towns that are wanting to convince people to get away from the coastline and drive a couple of hours out west. Um, And so they thought, well, why not just really lean into that bogan, you know, and we'll build a big bogan. Um, and most people, I think, in the area were on board with it, but 
there's definitely, there were definitely at the time people that were writing in and were protesting and saying, you know, this is going to give people the wrong idea. You know, we really don't want to encourage this perception of Ningen and the people of Ningen as quote unquote bogans. Um, nonetheless, got built and he's amazing. I mean, he's wearing a singlet and stubby shorts and he's got a Southern Cross tattoo and he's holding a fishing rod and he's got one foot up on an esky and I love him. I just, I love him. Um, humans, it's it's harder to make people look realistic as a biggie than even yes. a banana or a, or a mango, isn't it? Yeah, we're comp, and we're, we're often sort of move, you know, humans move. A, a, a banana doesn't tend to move, so it's perhaps easier to capture. Um, yeah, I mean, he he's definitely looks comical, but he's meant to. So I think they've achieved what they set out to achieve. And he has been quite... Um, helpful for them in pulling people out to to take photos with him. So tick, 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 you know, it's done the job. And you visited to have your photo taken. I, he's on my bucket list. Oh, he's I on your bucket I list? No, but my... Got, it's a long distance love affair <laughs> for you. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I have lots of those sort of unrequited loves of big things because I was I was all set. Um, I'd been doing doing this research 2017 onwards. I was all set sort of end of 2019. I was going to spend all of 2020 driving around Australia taking photos with them. And of course, we all know what happened in 2020. Um, and so that opportunity passed me by, unfortunately. So besides the, or as well as the big bogan, what else is on your bucket list when you get the oh chance to go gosh. and visit the big things of your dreams? There is a big rabbit trap in Albert. I don't think I'd even know what a rabbit trap looks like. No, and that's part of why I want to see it. Um, it looks like a medieval torture instrument. Uh, it sits on top of the Rabbit Trap Hotel in <laughs> Albert um, in New South Wales. It's also fairly recently made. And, um, yeah, they're very proud of it. And when you look up photos online of what it looks like, I think that it's great because if you were a local sort of living in that area where they do have problems with rabbit plagues every now and then, or if you'd grown up in an era where, you know, the 30s, 40s, where rabbits were much more common, you would know what it was. And then you've got people like me who would absolutely have no idea, but still want to stop and look at it. So it's sort of working in both ways. And I, I love that. So big things are being built again, but I feel that there would have been a period 10 years or so ago where they weren't so common. There was yeah. this real rush of building in the maybe the late 60s and then the 80s and they fell out of favour. How, with your historian's hat on, Amy, how, how do you map those changing, mm. uh, the changing view that we have of them and the appeal of them? Why, yeah. why does that shift? You're absolutely right. I mean, we, we built a lot of them in the 60s, 70s and 80s and I think in the 90s, I mean, there's definitely a, a noticeable dip in the 90s, early 2000s, where we're still building them, but nowhere near as many. Um, I think it's perhaps, I think in the 90s, we generally as Australians had a bit of a cultural cringe moment of the 80s were one of excess and Crocodile Dundee. And, you know, we really, that that was what we were doing then. And we wanted to move away from that and be taken seriously as a country. And I think perhaps that was part of why we stopped building so many. Um, but we have definitely really picked up steam again. You know, 2010s, 20s, we're building a lot more. And I mean, I have a few theories as to why that might be. Um, I think in the more recent period, there's been a lot of negativity, a lot of sadness in the world generally, feelings of, you know, hopelessness. We've had September 11 happened, um, the GFC 2008-9. Um, then, of course, we've had just the rolling chaos of climate change um, and then COVID. And I think that combination of things has made us all want or yearn. We wanted to sort of go back to a quote-unquote simpler time. And I think big things, it's not just big things, I think we've seen resurgences of other, you know, more innocent TV shows, you know, the things that we're wanting to watch and spend our time on, um, people returning to baking during COVID, you know. It's about, I think, something that's familiar, comfortable, childlike, nostalgic, 
And I think also, you know, the fact that there is so much that's mass produced mm. or that they we might be watching the same TV shows or wearing the same clothes or eating the same food in New York and in Shanghai and in Sydney, there's something so beautifully idiosyncratic yeah. and eccentric and, and personal about these objects. That's right. You know that that misshapen dinosaur is no. the only one of its kind. <laughs> and there is zero question about that. And I, I think it is, there's perhaps something about that moment of being in time and space with that thing that you know no one else is seeing or, you know, you're the one that's having that experience. It's very sort of centering and it sort of makes you feel quite present. Um, and you can feel special, I think, with big things as well. It's a special out of the everyday life sort of experience. For you as a historian, though, Amy, do you sometimes wish that people cared as much about other kinds of heritage <laughs> as they do about these bloody well, big bits of fruit and I, weird kangaroos and koalas? I'm in two minds, actually, I've got to say, because, yeah, I mean, there's lots. That, I mean, we could talk for hours about all of the things that we should be protecting and looking after um, from a heritage perspective. But I think really my... My view, I mean, I, I do a lot of work in the heritage space and my view is if we are saving anything, we should be saving the things that have the most appeal to the most people, you know, that that everyday people have seen, have experienced, you know, have interacted with, that they understand that they have some sense of connection to, they feel that there's value there. And I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we can't say that of some of the grander residences of the 19th century that we are already protecting. So I think the question for me is who are we protecting that for? And I don't know that we are really protecting that for anyone anymore. Whereas I suspect with big things, it's such a, you know, it's such a broad sweeping sort of group of people that love them. We perhaps should be saving them a little bit more than some of the things we already have on our heritage registers. And so how are you going to go about getting people on board with this, Amy? What's <laughs> well, your this is vision? step one, you know, just speaking to the nation. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think making people aware of their own role in heritage. You know, we, we academics are certainly part of the conversation, but everyone has a say in what we preserve. You, anyone is allowed to write into their local council or to their state government and say, I want to nominate this for protection. So we should be actively encouraging that, I think. I think there's going to be a lot of letters written out of this conversation. <laughs> Amy, it's been just fascinating and delightful. And as you said, there's there's an element that's just about joy when it comes to big things. Mm. And I feel very joyful after this conversation. Me too. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.